Hi there, and welcome to the Life Saving Gratitude Podcast. We are just now post Thanksgiving 2021. And uh, as you guys probably well know, because of the name of this podcast, Thanksgiving is one of my favorite holidays. Um, my producer and my co host isn't able to join me today because she is still recovering from all the things she had to do over Thanksgiving for my business and for a book signing that we had last week that was really, really exciting. I just want to let you know right now that I am available for book signings and readings. And we also, we're offering signed copies of my book so that you can give them to your friends and family for Christmas. That's what a lot of people wanted to buy last week. And so that's what we're going to offer. And the shipping will be free if you order those this week in honor of Cyber Monday. But all of that aside, this is a special podcast. I decided that I wanted to have a conversation with my listeners and talk about what it feels like to be finishing 60 and starting at 61. Who knew that I would get to be this old? And who knew that I would have such an a convoluted and interesting life that got me here. Um, I still can't believe that this is the life I get to lead, that I get to show up here every week and talk to you. But I've learned some really hard lessons over, along the way. And if, if there is one person out there who might benefit from the lessons I've learned, I want to record those and make them a permanent part of, of this podcast. This is going to be done in two parts because I got to tell you, when I get started talking, I can't stop. And on today's podcast, I get through the first five. And then next week, you'll hear the second five. So we're very excited to present this. And I hope you enjoy it. I hope you stay to the end because I give you some really really interesting statistics about how our brains work and how you can use your thoughts to be your most productive and fulfilled self. At least that's how it's working for me. Anyway, thank you for being here. Thank you for following us, for your reviews, for rating and subscribing wherever it is that you listen to podcasts and stay safe, stay grateful and have a wonderful holiday season. Thank you. Um, I'm recording on my own today because I had an idea that it would be helpful to me, maybe most of all, to look at um, the things that I've learned in this crazy life of mine. I'm going to be 61 on December 8th. And while I never, ever thought when I was younger that I was going to make it past 30, I, I actually did. And I survived a lot of things. I survived being broke and being a single mom and being divorced three times. And I survived stage four cancer. And I say over and over that I am not an expert on anything except my own life. And, and perhaps there is one person listening today that might benefit from me sharing some of my expertise at living a life that is really perfectly imperfect. I've done um, everything incorrectly that I could possibly do. Um, I've done everything the hard way. And yet 
I'm still here. I'm still showing up every day. And so I thought it would be fun for me to write down um, 10 of the most important things I've learned in this lifetime, um, things that still surprise me and that uh, are, are maybe insights that will make a difference for you. So the only thing I know to do always is just to begin to just start here. So number one on my list is that coming from contribution is always the answer. Um, I, this is an idea that I grew up with. My parents are both very giving. They um, were lay missionaries. And for those of you who don't know what that means, it means that they weren't sanctioned by a denomination or a church. They just saved up all their money all year long, which wasn't much. And they did garage sales and they sold things that they owned. And they had a lot of multi-level marketing experiences where they were trying to make money above and beyond what they were making in their regular jobs, which were varied. Um, but every year they would save a specific amount and then they would finance their own trips to places where they felt led to go and speak about their faith. And, and that's what I learned from a very early age is you just give back. They were volunteer firemen. They were volunteer EMTs. They did things for their community that perhaps a lot of other people didn't do, but it felt important to them that they stay involved, that they give th give away, that they give their time and their energy. And really that was all they had to give except for this amount of money that they would save every year. So I grew up with the idea of coming from contribution, but I was so enmeshed in survival mode that I didn't really have time to think about it as a life practice. I, I spent a lot of my life in survival mode. I was a single mom from the time that I was 21 until Johanna went to college in 2009. So, so that was about 30 years. And, and as you know, even though your kids go to college, you're still their single mom. And there was more than one time when Zach, who was in the third or fourth grade at the time, would call and say, mom, there's something wrong. Um, the light switches don't work. And, and what that always meant was that I hadn't been able to pay the electric bill. I can remember it happening at least twice. I remember really clearly one Monday afternoon in December when it was cold. And he called me after he'd gone home. He was a latchkey kid and he went home and let himself in the house. And he called and said, Mom, I can't get the light switches to work in any of our rooms. And I, you know, I put him off. I said, well, buddy, let me check and see what's wrong. You know, go over to your friend's house and hang out for just a little bit. I remember I was driving up Wyoming Boulevard in Albuquerque. I was headed home. I was headed, not home, but back to the office after a court run for the law office where I worked. And I was expected back at the office, but I made a little detour and went to the bank and was praying that there was something. There was a single cent in my bank account. This was before we had internet banking. So I had a checkbook, but you know, I was also juggling kids and buying diapers and worrying about healthcare and this job that was really stressful. And I was in the middle of getting divorced. And um, 
I needed to go to the bank and see, you know, do we have 50 bucks maybe? And um, because when the electric, when the electric company turns off your light, they don't take a check. You have to take cash. And I discovered that there was not a single cent in my bank account. In fact, I had a $29 overdraft and a $35 overdraft charge. I owed the electric company about $45, but you know what? In my life at that moment, it could have been $700. I didn't have that $109 or whatever it all added up to. I was brand new at my job. Johanna was about nine months old. I was really struggling to put food on the table. And I knew there was going to be daycare that I needed to pay on Friday. There was going to be food I needed to buy between now and then. And payday wasn't until the following Monday. And that was at a time in my life when the difference between surviving and crashing was about $300. To me, $300 was a huge sum of money then. And I, and I don't say that lightly now because I know that $300 is still a huge sum of money to a lot of people. At that moment, I was ashamed to call my parents. And, and, and I got to tell you, they, pro- they didn't really have the cash to spare. I was ashamed that I was getting divorced for the second time. And, and besides my parents were 200 miles away and this was in the day before they could just shoot me cash, you know, through Venmo or some other electronic method. I didn't want to ask my lawyer friends who had helped me get resettled. And I, 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 I didn't know where to go. So I swallowed my pride And I went into my boss's office because I thought, you know, we got to turn the heat on tonight. I have two little kids. And I asked him if I might get an advance of $110 so that I could pay my electric bill. And he looked really concerned and he said, wow, that's a high electric bill. I mean, remember, this was like 2000. Let me see. No, it was 1991. He said, that's a high electric bill. Do we need to, to do a check and see what's going on with your circuits or your heating? And And I swallowed my pride and I, again, which I seem to do a lot in those days. And I said, well, actually I have this little tiny overdraft and this larger overdraft charge. And if I could just get $110, I could cover all of those charges. And Mickey Barnett, who was the, my boss at the time, did one of the kindest things that anybody has ever done for me. It kind of makes me want to cry. And he reached into his wallet and he he had only known me a couple of months and he reached into his wallet and he handed me three crisp $100 bills. And I tried to give it back to him. And I insisted that he take it out of my salary. And he said, you can call this a loan if you want, but what I'd really like is that you give the same amount to someone else someday. That's what I'd really like for you to do. And $300 is nothing in today's money, except he saved my life that day. He saved my pride. And I was able to go to the electric company and pay my bill. And we were able to turn the lights and the heat back on, which is a big deal. You know, he gave me the rest of the afternoon off to handle my life. And I'm going to tell you that up until that moment, um, I didn't understand what coming from contribution really meant. It was a real, it was a vague family theory 
um, that had something to do, I thought, with my faith or, um, you know, being like Jesus. I, I don't know what I thought it was. But at that moment, somebody that I hardly knew had come from contribution. And I'm never going to forget. I've never forgotten what it felt like to be that person who had no resources. And I've never forgotten what a difference such a small amount, at least in today's numbers, meant to me on that really hard day of my life. At another time in my life, I was just finished with chemo. I was post-surgery and I was I was recovering from the recovery portion of my stage four cancer diagnosis. I was hoping it would never had come back. I'd spent hours, I'm sorry, I'd spent months being sick and then being in treatment and then having part of my gut removed. And I wasn't in the best financial shape of my life. I, my credit cards were maxed out and um, things, things were tight. And one of the things that, um, that happens when you're undergoing chemotherapy is that they tell you you can't have any dental work done. Johanna and I just happened to be at a church luncheon and we were standing behind these two tall young men and my cousin, Jennifer, who's always proud because she was part of my cancer journey. She's always proud to tell people what she feels like I accomplished. She came and stood next to me and she said, oh, I want to introduce you to Patrick. And this young man turned around and his name was Patrick McQuitty, and we uh, afterwards always called him Dr. McCutie because he was so handsome, but she introduced him and she said, I want you to meet my cousin. She survived stage four cancer. And I said, you know, we visited for a minute and I said, you know, I really need to see a dentist. And because I've been months without any sort of dental care, a year at least, and so we made it. I called. He said, well, call my office, make an appointment. I went in. I visited with him. He did x-rays and, a, and an exam. And he came in and sat down afterwards. And he said, well, you need seven fillings and three crowns. And he might, this is like when my electric bill could have easily, if it had been $700, it wouldn't have made any difference. That was such and he, and he handed me this little estimate and I looked at it and then I looked at him and I said, well, what if we do this over a very long period of time? Um, you know, it's, it, I, I think that the final tally was going to be like $4,600 and I was freaked out. And I didn't, I wasn't even sure that I could pay for the exam that I had had that day. And I said, you know, my daughter's in graduate school. I'm just getting back on my feet. I've got to figure out a lot of things. And he reached over and put his hand on my arm and he said, let me do this for you. And I said, um, well, wait, no, let me, let's do this. I'll, we'll do it on a payment plan. And he said, no, no, no. I mean, let me do this for you. And then at some point in your life, you can pay it forward to someone else. I, 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 I still am blown away by that generosity. I went in, I had a number of visits. I got three crowns. I finally got my dental care up to date. And for those of you who know 
what it's like when you can't afford to do those sorts of things. It is such a powerful experience for someone to be that kind. Now, I'll tell you, I have never referred another person in Santa Fe to a different dentist. Um, He was generous in a way that he didn't have to be, and he didn't know me, and um, he never asked a single thing of me other than I take care of myself and that I pay it forward. Um. I then learned the phrase come from contribution from somebody. When I first went to Keller Williams, I was blessed with both a friendship and a mentorship with my friend, Judy Camp, who happened to be my qualifying broker. And Judy Camp is such an inspiration that I keep thinking I need to write a book. What would Judy Camp say? And every time I would go, I was brand new in the Santa Fe market. I didn't know what I was doing. And every time I would go to Judy with a question, she would say, well, how can you come from contribution? And I would say, I don't even know what you mean. And she would say, no, your client is in a tough spot. They want this done for their house, but they also don't want to offend the seller. They, you know, they're asking for things that, that the seller may not be able to provide. How can you come from contribution? And I would think, well, um, I can sit down with my buyers. I can very gently tell them that the ask they're making may not be in their best interest. I can help them make informed decisions. All she said to me every day was, you have to be in a mindset of coming from contribution. That rolled over into what became my advocacy life, which is that if every day you come from contribution. If you get up in the morning saying, show me the people that I can help today. If you have an affirmation that says, please let me be the answer to someone's prayer today, then you're going to be just like Mickey Barnett and Patrick McQuitty were for me at a time when I desperately needed some help. Generosity and coming from contribution were things that I learned from my parents, but until I put them into practice, my life didn't begin changing. There is no feeling that is more powerful than giving something to somebody who needs it and doing it in a way where it's either anonymous or where you don't expect a single thing back from them. I would say that my life has been enriched beyond belief by the ability to be generous when people need it the most, expect it the least, and when you don't care what the payback is. So one of the most important things I've learned up to this point in my life for myself is that coming from contribution is always the best practice. Number two on my list, which is a hard one for me to admit to because I'm still in the business of doing this, is that you can't please everyone all the time. I am a professional people pleaser. It's my special gift. I can make a really good lemon pie and I throw good parties that no one wants to miss. But my first and best talent is thinking that I can make everyone happy, every single person. And it wasn't until recently that I learned that's really selfish and it's, it's really controlling. 
I had to get to be 60 years old before I learned that my trying to make everybody that by trying to make everyone happy, I wasn't really making anyone happy and that you can't make anyone happy. And least of all, I couldn't make myself happy by trying to please everybody else. And I also learned that there's a level of control that people pleasers use to exert over the world. So it's like this. Wait, wait, if we're going to, if I'm going to plan a dinner and, or a trip or an event and I want, and I want everybody to be happy, 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 I need to be in control of all the details. I need to be in control of how the dinner goes, where the trip takes place, what the email, what the event entails. And I'm basically saying to the world that I know better than anyone else what they want. The best example is, is when I'm planning stuff with my kids and my grandkids. If we're driving to the lake and I, my kids are bringing their kids, I feel like I should plan the perfect route so that there are bathrooms and snacks and scenery. And I exhaust myself trying to take care of all the contingencies. And you know what that results in? <laughs> it results in this teeny tiny bit of resentment on the parts of others. And it conveys that I don't trust them to make their own choices about what they want to do. It is the same with writing. It's the same with being a leader. You can't please everybody. And when you try to, it, it's sort of like in advertising where you can't be all things to all people. You have to choose what you're best at and be that. I wrote a blog post about 12 years ago about being in the second grade in Logan, New Mexico. I wanted to capture what it felt like to be a geeky six-year-old with bangs that were too short and older siblings that intimidated me and a teacher that scared the bejesus out of me, people in my community that I found both fascinating and bewildering, like the custom of smudging foreheads on Ash Wednesday. I didn't understand that. And I wrote it from the point of view of a second grader who had only recently learned to read and who was afraid of her teacher. And at the time I wrote it, the praise for that blog post was really high. I had I have rows of comments on that original blog that said they knew exactly how I felt, that it brought up all these memories of their own childhood, that they could just see where I was at the moment I felt those things. And that post about being in the second grade in Logan, New Mexico has been reposted on my blogs about six times, maybe more. I thought it was a really sweet story about how fortunate I was at the end of the day to get off that big yellow school bus and run into our warm farmhouse where it smelled like baking cookies and music was playing on the stereo system that my parents had just bought on a revolving credit account at Western Auto. I, I wrote about my parents dancing in the living room and how fortunate I felt. Even though I was in the second grade, I understood that what we had in my family could be different from what other people had. So a couple of weeks ago, we reposted that same blog post on the I Love New Mexico blog, and there was still a lot of praise. And then there were a couple of comments by people I went to school with who honestly, a couple of them were intimidating bullies to me when I was a child. There were accusations that I was bullying the people that I wrote about. There was citations of New Mexico law about what I could say and what I couldn't say. And I received a Facebook message from another person I grew up with, a copy of a post that she had written saying, well, here's, some, here's something written by a person who professes to be a Christian. And wow, 
check out the ugly things she writes about our community, especially about people who aren't alive and can't defend themselves. And I took the post down because it just didn't seem worth it to offend someone so badly. But it also really rankled me. I thought, wait a second, you know, you, you, you can write your own story about what it felt like to you to be in the second grade. If you need to say ugly things about me, then I probably deserve them. I had to remember you can't please everyone all the time. And the sooner you stop trying, the sooner you and they will be happy. I can't tell you what I'm going to do about the blog post. It's one of my sweet, it's what I consider one of the sweetest pieces of family writing, but I'm going to leave it alone for now. I'm going to think about it. Number three on my list of things I've learned, mostly the hard way, (laughs) is to love myself and my body and my life right now, or as I like to call it, joy is the best makeup. It's a phrase that I learned from Anne Lamott. I I want you to know that if I added up every moment during my lifetime that I've wished that I were thinner or taller, or I had straighter teeth or, or, or even I'm going to admit larger breasts, I suspect that all of that total time that I have wasted wishing for a different body would amount to a couple of years out of my life. I mean, it's like I've wasted at least two years of my life wishing that I looked different. And I know this because every day of my life, I've thought I was missing some mysterious mark of perfection. And then if I, I'd only count more calories or run another half mile and, 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 and I'll, you know, I don't know who I'm kidding because it's been years since I ran rather than walking. But I always thought if I took better of my, better care of my skin or I had my nails done, you know, I mean, you know the drill. Every day of my life, I have found some deficiency in my physical appearance. Um, Right now, I'm wishing I had on some lipstick. And this, my friends, is despite my daily practice that I promised myself of viewing myself naked in the mirror and saying thank you to my body for being so functional. And added to that daily practice is also my practice of admiring some piece, some part of my exterior. I learned this tip from my friend Oprah who suggested it in a column about 10 years ago. And I, I really took it to heart. I mean, most days I, it was my right elbow, um, which is really quite symmetrical. I'll have, you know, or the small on my back where it curves down to what I've always, I swear, always thought of as too large. Although the small on my back was quite attractive. I told my husband this morning that I had always thought I had a big butt and he laughed. He said, bigger than what? And, and I thought about it because really, why would I think that? And I think that because it's conditioned, because especially as females in this world, we are conditioned to think that we don't meet the mark because somebody somewhere when I was probably 14 years old said, God, honey, you have a big butt. And I took it to heart and those words became a part of who I am. And I'm going to talk more in a minute about one of my other points, which, which is that your thoughts, you can choose your thoughts. Um, but what I got, what I want you guys to know is that my butt really isn't any bigger than anybody else's. And what an odd and silly and destructive thing to think about myself. Um, so, as I said, as I said earlier, if I had every one of those moments back during which I beat up my body, 
I could have written like 12 bestsellers and possibly cured cancer. I mean, all that energy was lost on something that number one, wasn't true. And two, didn't matter. I had to get stage four cancer before I learned to love my body for its imperfections and for its scars and for its functionality. So my rule number three that I've learned in this life is love your body. Don't wait until it nearly fails before you start being joyful about the gift that it is. Does it walk? Does it move? Do your knees bend? I mean, what, what, what a miracle we are physically. But, and, and who knows, once you start loving your body, you might just start treating it with more love and respect. You might take it out for a walk on occasion. I think that's what I'm hoping for for myself anyway. My rule number four that I, I've learned the hard way, but I'm learning, is that happiness is right in front of you. It's not about to happen. It's right there. I'm working on a book right now that talks about all the failed relationships I was in and how the entire time I thought that if I could just find the right mate, my life would fall into place and it would look just like my parents' life did. I watched them being crazy in love with each other every day and I somehow believed that happiness was outside myself, particularly in the form of another person who would love me exactly the way I was. I always said I was going to finally be happy when something else happened. When I found the right guy, when I found the right job, when I found the right place to live and, and to reflect on the last point, when I weighed the right amount and had my nails perfectly done. Except, you know what? I was already happy. My life was already full. I had these two kids who generally liked me most of the time, who were healthy and thriving and and most of all, at least in my book, funny and kind and interesting. We had a lot of fun together. I had great friends. I was respected by my work colleagues. And I went on a lot of really cheap adventures. I had a supportive extended family. And I lived in New Mexico, which is my favorite place in the world. Happiness was right there in front of me all the time. And all the searching for it was exhausting. It's really true that you sometimes can't see the forest for the trees. And what I've learned is that if we will take time to sit still and reflect on what we have, rather than what we don't have, we're going to recognize that joy and happiness are right in front of us. They are an integral, integral part of our world. Here's another, here is another law that I learned that, that really shocked me. This may seem so elementary to everybody else, but you know what? You're in charge of your thoughts. You get to choose your thoughts. Now you have a lot of first thoughts that show up and you can immediately recognize them and let them go. But you are in charge of what your brain decides to process. So create a safe harbor. And remember that your mind doesn't know the difference sometimes between reality and, and imagination. So when I was, when my kids were little, I had a bulletin board at work on which I posted a lot of things that mattered to me. There were pictures of both of my kids, usually candid shots of them laughing together. There was a family photo of me with my mom and my sister and my nieces and my beloved aunt Ruby. It was a group of strong women who all inspired me and, and it made me smile. 
I had a copy of the article about Cal Ripken Jr.'s 2131st baseball game in which he broke Lou Gehrig's record for most consecutive baseball games played. I I got to tell you, I loved baseball, but this was also a daily reminder that just showing up is more important than anything else. There were a couple of Dennis Robinson rookie cards that Zach had given me for my birthday that year before because he knew how much I loved basketball in the San Antonio Spurs. There was also a far side cartoon with a drawing of a wrinkled shirt speaking to an iron saying, don't press me, damn it, which reminded me to sometimes say to my bosses, hang on, my plate is full. I can only do so many things in one day. And there was a black and white photo. It was actually an advertisement that I got out of a magazine of three really scruffy looking young little boys that read the stress the average mom goes through on a daily basis would bring most executives to their knees. And finally, there was a quote that I had cut out of a magazine that read, be brave, even if you're not pretend to be, no one can tell the difference. It was really true, even when I was terrified to be alive, to have to get up in the morning and be an adult and a mom and a paralegal and get it right and make sure everybody got to school and that the backpacks were packed and that there was enough money in the bank to pay the electric bill, of course. Um, Even when I was afraid of life, I acted like I knew exactly what I was doing. And you know what? No one knew the difference. And what I didn't know at the time was that my brain didn't know the difference either. And I steadily became somebody who my friends thought was really brave. So there's a lot of controversy surrounding the idea that your brain doesn't know the difference between reality and your imagination. So just let me say up front that I'm not going to take on that argument right here. What I do know is that if I tell myself something on a regular basis, negative or positive, it eventually becomes my reality. And that's because my mind is the most powerful tool I own. One of the things I've learned over the past 10 years is that I have the power to choose my thoughts and the power. and, And I've also learned that the power of hope is a better predictor of success than any skill I possess. So if I choose thoughts that are hopeful, that is a better predictor of success than whether I'm a good writer or a good leader or a good podcaster. It's just knowing that I hope that I'm making some sort of an impact is a really powerful predictor of my success. So I read, um, like everybody else in the world, I read Elizabeth Gilbert's Eat, Pray, Love. And when I read, I tend to dog ear the bottoms of pages that have phrases I want to go back to. And I'm just going to tell you, I mark up books more than I used to. Um, I treat them more like old friends and less like their prizes. And and that's why I appreciate um, physical books rather than e-books. But the part of Eat, Pray, Love that I always refer back to was when Elizabeth Gilbert is at an ashram and she learns unexpectedly to her and certainly unexpectedly to me at the time that she can control her thoughts rather than allowing her thoughts to control her. And she says we're not, she's not talking about repression or denial, but awareness. We've talked about mindful and 
mindfulness on the podcast before. And I, I just want to demystify that term. It's just being aware. And you need to be aware that you can treat your mind as if it's a safe harbor for positive rather than negative thoughts. And that when unhealthy thoughts show up, you can recognize them and just say, you know what, this is a safe harbor for good thoughts. And, and you bad, unhealthy, ugly, angry thoughts, you're just not welcome here. You can just simply recognize those thoughts and reject them. And I got to tell you, this is a hard truth for me because I had never considered that I was able and allowed to choose my thoughts. And as I said in the beginning of this podcast, I've been in survival mode for so long at the time that I didn't know a different way other than just letting life happen to me. So I eventually wrote a book about the power of gratitude, and I knew that learning how to see and acknowledge and then choose my thoughts was the beginning of my gratitude journey. You know, I had a dad I still have him, thank goodness, I'm very grateful for that, who said every day that if he were any better, he'd have to be two people. And hearing that on a frequent basis was also part of the journey. So I want to talk for just a second about self-talk. I was coached by a guy named Price Pritchett, who is the author of a book called You Squared and the Quantum Leap Strategy. That's a a real cult classic. I mean, those are 39-page books that will change your life if you can pick them up. And I'll put a link to those books in this podcast. But Price Pritchett says in the Quantum Leap Strategy that your most active, most personal, most powerful coach is you. So... Here are some numbers, just so you have these for those scientific types up there. We say 300 to 1,000 words to ourselves every minute, every single minute. And I, I find I find that hard to believe, but that's what the science says. And when I think about all the self-talk that I give myself, including those that those two years of saying that my body wasn't perfect, I understand what he's saying. You also have about 3,000 daydreams per day that tell you little stories. And of all those words you say to yourself and all those daydreams that you have every day that tell you stories, none of those are necessarily true. But your brain doesn't know the difference. And there's here's here's something else that's really important to remember. And I... I have a I always want to remember this concept because it feels to me like the most important part of controlling your thoughts and choosing your thoughts. There are two voices in my head. And there are two voices in your head, I suspect. There's a critic and there's a positive voice. And the critic is there to safeguard you. It's 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 the part of your voice that says, "Don't step into the street when cars are coming." But it's also the part of your brain that says, oh, you don't need to think that you can write a book. Think how people are going to make fun of you. Um, Who are you to think that you can run a marathon in 2022? Really? Really you think you can do that? It's there to safeguard you, but it's also there to undermine you. Then you have your positive voice, which is your hero voice. It's the voice that most of us push aside because we don't believe ourselves when we tell ourselves we're pretty amazing. You can make the positive voice the voice that leads you. You can choose. You get to choose which voice you listen to. 
there's a magic ratio of five to one. And this ratio says that for every negative thought, you want to strive to replace that thought with five positive thoughts. Remember? Because your brain doesn't know the difference. And remember the voice I had in my head that told me I had a big butt? Well, what if they're in, what if instead of believing that voice, I had consistently told myself that I have a great body and a functional body and a cherished body five times over. I want you to hear today that what has worked for me is learning how to choose my thoughts. I'm not an expert at it. I'm not even very good at it. Like Anne Lamont says, at, at the moment that I think I'm the most evolved, I'll have some really uncharitable thought about somebody and think, and these are Anne Lamont's words, not mine. Um, the things I think about other people would make Jesus want to drink vodka from the dog bowl. I, I am not perfect, but boy, am I working hard at, at fulfilling that magic ratio of five to one. What I realize in all of this talking is that I have said a lot. And we're at about probably 38 minutes, and I still want to take time to do an intro. So I'm going to do this in two pieces. So you got the first five of my favorite important life lessons. I'm just going to go through them again real quickly. Coming from contribution is always the answer. And I want to remind you, these are laws for me. I don't know what your laws are. You can't please everyone all the time. You got to love yourself and your body and your life right now because joy is the best makeup and happiness is right in front of you. It's right there. You've already got it. You just need to sit still, pay attention, figure out what you're grateful for and recognize that you can be joyous because happiness is right in front of you. And number five, which is really, really powerful, you are in charge of your thoughts. You can create a safe harbor. You can choose what you want to think. And your mind doesn't know the difference between reality and daydreaming. So pick five positive thoughts for every negative thought you have. I'll be back with more. You're going <laughs> to, some of these are really funny, but um, I got to tell you that, that, one of the things I'm going to talk about in my next podcast is that it's not failure if you don't quit and you really don't have a lot of time. Thanks for being here. Thanks for checking in and thanks for listening to my rambling. I'm pretty excited to get to be 61. It's a gift to be alive. That's all we've got today, friends. I want to thank you for joining the Life Saving Gratitude podcast with your host, Bunny Terry. That's me and my producer and assistant, Johanna Medina. We feel like we're in the business of sharing the stories that save us. And we hope you'll share as well by letting your friends and family know about the podcast. Follow and like us wherever you listen. And please take the time to leave a review. Whether it's a stellar comment or a suggestion, we are open to suggestions all the time. Also, follow us on Instagram at LifesavingGratitudePod. You can also follow me personally at Bunny Terry Santa Fe. You can sign up at my website at bunnyterry.com to receive weekly emails about how to become the ultimate gratitude nerd. Thanks so much for checking in. <laughs>